statistically 17% of the caregivers die before the person that they're caring for, because we're not always caring for an elderly person. It could be a sister, a sibling, a spouse, a disabled child. So the caregiver is giving, they already have a plate before they have this, a plate full of activities. They have a job, they have a whole life, and all of a sudden they have this other responsibility to take care of this other person. And they keep giving, 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 and they stop going to their book club and and exercising and all the things that help generate them and help them to stay healthy. And they just keep giving and then they expire. And I want the caregivers to take care of themselves, that to me is just as important as the person that you're caring for. Because if you are not there to take care of them, who will? Absolutely So can right. you read the A through Z for the caregivers? Is that okay with yes. you? Okay. Yes, it's it's A through Z. Hmm. Uh, I'll just say with them, A, A is address the issues at hand, and Z is zone out and reward yourself for a job well done. <laughs> I like I, I like how quick you went through those. You got corners there, don't you? <laughs> I took some poetic liberties in writing. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We have a special guest today. Our guest is an expert in elder care, Dr. Marion Sommers. Uh, her book, Elder Care Made Easier, second edition is out, so make sure you get that. Dr. Marion, thank you for joining us. Oh, believe me, it's my pleasure. Now, people don't just wake up every day and become experts in elder care. Can you give us a little bit about your background? It all started when I was I, I was born in Harlem, New York City, and we were uh, we lived in a in a, one of these six uh, six story buildings, and everybody in the building was uh, very elderly except my family. We had four kids, we, but we were the only family that had young children. And so I started at the age of nine and ten, started to take care of all the needs that were uh, obvious to me. Uh, that these elderly people needed. What did you see when you say what they needed? I, 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 mean... saw, I saw I saw loneliness. I saw uh, not being able to go up because it wasn't an elevated building. It was a walk up. So people had to walk up and down the steps. They, they couldn't get their groceries. Uh, they didn't have families that were involved with them. Their families would come on weekends. But during the week, these people mostly did not have anyone to interact with. And I found that the elderly have stories. <laughs> they were living history. That's what Amen. I found so exciting. They were absolutely living history. You know, I found out why when someone was there, they, they saw when electricity came to, to uh, the streets 
or when the horse and carriages were were going around and I I didn't have to read it from a book I was hearing it from these people <laughs> and I found being with the elderly extraordinarily exciting so did somebody model that sense of compassion for you or was it just your curiosity I was the eldest of the four girls mm. and so I was responsible for taking care of my sids from the time they were born so I've always had responsibility, but that's the way my life was. So I never looked at it as anything other than this is what you do. So you're kind of drawn to the elderly, would you say? Oh, very much so. They 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 have stories. They have life history. They have seen history in the making. I've walked. I've talked with people from World War One and, and World War Two. It was it was. I always felt it was a privilege. I felt I was transported to another world. So I found talking to them very exciting, very rewarding, and I was always learning. And I have a passion for learning. Dr. Marion, at what point did you write the first edition of this book and what was the motivation? The motivation was where I was working with people. I was teaching, I was a college professor. Uh, and and again, people would somehow gravitate toward me and say, I have a mother, I have an aunt, I have an uncle, I have a, a grandmother, a great-grandmother. And all of these questions kept coming to the surface. And I was teaching, but and I was teaching geriatrics because I have a PhD in, in gerontology and special populations. Mm. And special populations means anybody with a physical, mental, or emotional handicap. So I covered the whole gamut. So no matter what anybody presented as a potential problem for them, I would give them workarounds as to how to best address whatever the particular problems were. And after a while, I realized that I needed to do a book because this one-on-one -on -one wasn't helping the world. Mm. It, I wanted it. I wanted. I wanted to have. I didn't want people to be in pain. That's basically it. I didn't want them to to be suffering, either the person who now became the caregiver or the person who is now elderly or infirmed, or sometimes we're dealing with young children who have very serious problems. I had my first serious death experience. I was in a hospice program doing uh, part of my, my master's program as my field work, and I was in a hospice program. And they, because I had always been around children, they assigned me the pediatric ward of the hospice program. And that was so sad. And I didn't want to bring sadness to this population. They assigned two young men to me, two young boys. One was, one was eight and the other was going to be 10. And it, so I sang to them. We played games. We talked about life. We talked about the beautiful flowers. We talk, I always brought in something alive. I would bring in flowers. I'd bring in a tiny pet turtle that I had at that time. The two young men, uh, I was finished with my school assignment and the youngest, uh, the mother called me up of, of the almost 10 year old. And she said, I don't think Timmy's going to last through the weekend. Will you come here? So I went to the hospice program, although I was finished with my school assignment. I was so attached to this child. And he, we, 
they they had rocking rocking chairs in the pediatric ward, and I had him on my lap. He he weighed nothing next to nothing, and I'm holding this child, and we're singing camp songs. I sang songs that the that the children already knew, mm. and we were singing, and all of a sudden he got lighter, mm. and the mother was standing in the doorway, and she mouths to me, "Is he still with us?" And I said, get the doctor. So she got the doctor. And when the doctor and the, the head nurse and the mother were just walking in the doorway, the child opens his eyes, looks at me, and he says, Dr. Marion, it's mm. not so bad. Mm-hmm. It's really not so bad. Don't be afraid of death. And with that, the child died in my arms. Mm. I had that was my very first experience with somebody dying in my arms. But it was a beautiful experience. This child came back and gave us that gift of whatever it was he was experiencing. Uh-huh. How has that experience changed your sense? Oh, it changed my sense that I don't know that I ever had a fear of death, but I know death is nothing more than a transition. And that there is something beyond that. Whether you believe in the pearly gates or whatever it is your individual belief is, makes no difference. We all go through the experience of death and there is something else at the other end. Our body is is no longer needed and our spirits, our souls uh, just continue. That's my belief system. Mm. And it works for me. That's powerful. Uh, So um, you wrote your book in Steps. Could you give us the rationale behind that? I wrote it in steps rather than chapters because I want whoever is reading the book to go to whatever their particular issue is. And so each of these steps is stands by itself. Each step can be understood and can address whatever the particular problem is. So I started with communication. The first step is communicate openly. And I truly feel if you do not communicate efficiently, effectively, and with with compassion and understanding of the person that you're communicating with, they're not going to hear you. And it gives you ideas on how to best either position yourself or the clothing that you're wearing or the whole nine yards. But there's a, a lot of different ways to help. It's even talking to somebody who seems to be mentally incompetent or at that moment is is out of it, as they say, uh, there are ways to communicate, holding somebody's hand, making sure that the light is on you when you're talking to them, making sure that their eyeglasses are clean uh, when you're talking to them. There are so many little hints in there that will help everybody, whether you're talking to your spouse or you're talking to a child or you're talking to somebody that you are now the caregiver of, there are hints in there. Uh, One of the things that I find so significant, and it's your number one, and that's communication. And we in hospice get told on many occasions, don't use the H word when we walk into a patient's room. Our family doesn't want that. That's a that's a that's not being honest. And how can we address that from your perspective and your experience? So I know that we, you know, if someone were to come up to me and say, "Hey, 
uh, uh, by that, a, a patient comes up to me and say, hey, you know, am I dying? I'm not going to lie to them. I'm certainly going to tell them the truth. Uh, and that's happened. And then you bring, then you bring, and then hopefully you bring something in that will get rid of that elephant in the room, which will then open it up even more. And just, do you have any suggestions for folk on how to make sure that we can do this appropriately? I think you're right on target. I believe in honesty, no matter who I'm speaking with, whether it's a three-year-old or a 103-year-old, I deal with honesty. People know when you're you're fabricating, <laughs> you're lying to them. Yeah. And I feel that's disrespectful, especially when you're dealing with somebody who is in a hospice program. They know they're they're on the way out of this world as we know it. And it's important for them to have the ability to have something to say. How do they want to have their funeral? Mm-hmm. Or who do they want to have uh, come to their memorial service? If whatever, whatever the arrangements, if they are not told that they're going to die, then they're not part of the preparation for it. Exactly. And this is their last parade. And I mm-hmm. believe they are the leader of the band and they have every right to, to put in their two cents. This is their life. This is their memorial. This is their death process. And they need to be able to explain to others what they want or what they don't want. I, I, had, I had one woman who had at one time, she was at the end of her life. At one time, she had been a very robust, heavyset woman. And she was at the end of her life and her family absolutely forbid me to say to her that she was, she was in the dying process, as we all are, by the way. Yes. And and so I, so I, so she talked when all her family had finally left, she said to me very quiet, she says, they don't think I know I'm dying, but she says, I know I am. And nobody wants to talk to me about it. Oh, how beautiful. She says, I want to make arrangements. I want, I want to choose the dress that I'm going to be laid out in. And she says, nobody, nobody, they're treating me like an imbecile. And she says, I haven't lost my marbles. She says, I'm just old and I'm dying. So I said, well, if you could say something to them, what would you say? Well, she rattled off absolutely everything that was on Mm -hmm. her mind, including Mm -hmm. she wanted this ugly yellow dress. And I said to her, (laughs) I said, why do you want that dress? I said, I'll be happy to go out and we can we can get something that is more more modern, more more your style. Because she was a very stylish lady. And she says, mm. she says, I don't want them to hurt me when I'm dead by trying to put my my arms through the other things. She says everything would be so tight. She said, that dress is so fat. She said, uh, I, that when that's from my fat time that I could just <laughs> fly. They could, and she said, I'm oh. making it easier for them. And I said, honey, this is, this is your parade. We're going to have you be the band leader. And I tell you, her disposition, her manner, her everything changed. Oh, absolutely. She said, this is what I want. And <laughs> we <laughs> ixnayed that yellow dress and we got her a lovely, lovely outfit. Um, and she told me who she wanted to have her at her memorial service and who she did not want to have at her memorial <laughs> service. But she was going to have the last say no matter what. Yeah. But her, when I, I when I told her family, I said, "This is what happened. This is what your mother needed." She waited until you were out of the the, the house, and this is what she said to me. And I passed out all the information on to them, and they were 
in shock and they were relieved at both at the same time. Yeah. Mm. The atmosphere between that family and that mother, in this case, the mother, was totally changed. Instead of being maudlin about her dying, they of course they were sad, but they didn't have this, this gray cloud over them. It mm. was a celebration of her life. So yeah. we transformed it from one to the magnificence of her life and all the wonderful things she did in her life. And she had a chance to interact with them and, and say she was sorry for things that she was sorry for. And, and they were they were able to say things to her that would have would have never been said. Mm-hmm. And before you leave this earth, it's important that you have your slate clean, is Absolutely. the way I put it. My dad was dying about 10 years ago, and really quick. He got sick on Tuesday and died on Friday. And... Uh, all the family was there. Everything was right. But before even that, all that happened, I, the night before, we, we took the oxygen off him, and that's when he died. I was talking to my mom, and I'm like, you know, how do I, how do I address this subject? They've been married 67 years, and I keep reading stories and hearing of people who just say, oh, there's my life. I'm going to go next. And I said to my mom, I said, Mom, what are you going to do after Dad dies? And she looked at me and, and went, huh? I said, you know, a lot of people, no, I'm going to live. And she'll be 97 in October. Wow, so she lives. So she wants to live, and so she is. We do make the choice. And the communication Sometimes. had to be open there because I needed to know if she was just going to do that and so if I could prepare myself in any way to think that she just might follow along in the steps of my dad. But mm. nope, she's... Did her own journey from that point on. But you opened the door for her to be free about what she wanted to do. Exactly. Without feeling any sense of guilt on her part. No, I just wanted her to to know what I was thinking. And sometimes people are afraid to do that under these kind of circumstances. Mm. Absolutely. You did a fantastic job by opening the door. Thank you. Uh, In step two, you say put safety first. What's the role of safety in elder care? Sometimes the primary problems and accidents happen within the home, mm. primarily in the bathroom. So I usually start off with all the bathroom things you can do and change by putting a little, sometimes little bars um, along the bathtub. Mm. So whether they're in a sitting position or a standing position, those those safety rails are in place. I also like safety rails near the toilet. So, and and the position so that if a man is standing up and urinating, he can hold on to that bar as well as holding on to whatever else he needs to hold on to. Uh, but to to have that say, sense of safety, putting some sort of non-slippery surface on the floor or the the base of the tub, very important. All the things that are basically common sense that we don't always think about yeah. until something happens. Putting putting safety guards at the top of stairways and the bottom of stairways. If somebody can't walk anymore or climb steps anymore, there are so many things out there. And sometimes when people are uh, in that position, they they go to the computer and they do a 
a computer search for all the safety things in the bathroom and they get overwhelmed. Mm. They get you know, 200 pages of uh, safety things. But I bring it down to, in my book, I bring it down to the basics. Elder care made easier is all about the basics. People can go on from that point, but dealing with the basics is all you need. I like, I like, yeah, I like what you write. And your steps are really amazing because there are many seniors that just want to age in place and they want to stay in their homes. And your steps really provide um, really good, you know, good steps and wisdom for them to be able to really accomplish that goal of staying home. Well, thank you. You caught the essence of my book. I appreciate that. <laughs> and you of haven't course. even read the whole thing. <laughs> no, I mean, even, I think... <laughs> even the information that I put out, I made it very succinct, very mm. clear. Uh, it's it's very easy to to elaborate and, and write 200 pages on an idea, but that's not my goal. My goal is simple, clear, straightforward, as as easy to understand as is humanly possible. How do you inspire, if you want to call it that, someone to keep moving? Uh, all you hear, I'm not all you hear. You hear, uh, oh, I hurt all the time. I've got this, I've got that. And you try to break that, whether they're hurting physically, mentally, emotionally, uh, which is causing their pain and stopping them from making movement. Because I am such a firm believer as you to keep moving, move it or lose it, as I've heard so many times. How do you change the attitude? Or can you? Uh, one, I think you can change the attitude, but you can't say you have to do it. Ah, uh, that's it. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sorry I'm that way. <laughs> you can't even say it's good for you. Um, one of the things that I didn't talk about in, in the, the communication is I always start with the personal pronoun I. I never say to my one of my clients, you do this or this should have been done. I said, mm. I think that exercise is a benefit. I think that exercise is healthy. All the different ways. And, and I, I start with the I. And then I, I always give myself as an example, this is what I do. And or I'll say, I have had a client that was uh, in a very similar situation because they like something where they understand that I understand. And I'll say, well, he did this and he did this and he did this and we did it one step at a time. It, it's it's you have to do it in increments. Yeah, yeah. And you have to give them a reason. If the body is aching and in pain, it's usually aching and in pain because it's being neglected. Good point. And when and when you exercise, you're bringing blood flow throughout the body. You're bringing blood flow, blood flow to the head and the brain. The brain is getting oxygen from the exercise. So it's not just your body you're putting in better shape. You're putting your mind in better shape. You, you'll feel more alert. I will say, I feel more alert when I have exercised. I feel, and it's always the personal pronoun, I. Mm -hmm. I had somebody who was a swimmer and her her physical condition was such that getting to a pool was was just impossible. But we did all the swimming motions uh -huh. in, in the chair, but it had to be a chair without arms. 
So she was able to do the swimming motions while she was sitting in a chair. And it perked her up, her her face shined. Uh, She said, oh, it's bringing back good memories because when we move the body, we also are releasing thoughts and memories. And if we can bring good memories to the people that we're, we're caring for and helping and supporting, that's the name of the game. They uh, have good memories, but oh. we sometimes need to help them remember that they had good times, they had good moments, they had happy experiences. That's very important to bring that to the fore. You don't go you don't go very far without getting them to think about what they've been incapable of doing before. I mean, it's just couldn't agree more. Uh, when you say adaptive equipped, adapted equipment, moving on to step number four. Uh, you're not just talking wheelchairs, walkers, you're talking about other stuff too, right? Well, there, there is, there is an adapted equipment for virtually any part of the body that needs to move, even so much as picking up a spoon. Sometimes your, their mm. hands are, will not grasp a regular spoon. Well, there's adapted equipment for particular spoons for different kinds of ailments and if somebody has parkinson's and they they may be shaking they have spoons that will will keep its equilibrium so that they could still scoop up and spoon feed themselves because the adapted equipment absorbs the shock of of the shaking hands every part of the body there's is some sort of adapted equipment out there somewhere that's another reason why people need to Read, uh, read this book and understand what you're talking about, because mm-hmm. I had no idea about that, that equipment for an, uh, a Parkinson's person, uh, because well, you, that's, that's, I did not know that. That's incredible. It's, it's easier if you go to the specific organization, because they will have all the adapted equipment that is particular to that particular disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I well, understand. We'll, we'll take a little break and then we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Saul Ebem, and you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Marion on our steps. Um, step five, Dr. Marion, you, you talk about managing financial issues. Can you um, explore more on that? Well, in, right now we have an epidemic of fraud. <laughs> so it's very important that somebody closely monitor uh, the elderly, whether you get a, but just make sure that the person who is signing the checks or, or keeping tabs on their bills and what have you, their, their motives are pure and that they are legally responsible. And I always try to have somebody sign papers that say, I am, uh, I get, I recommend rather, I recommend that they get a fiduciary, somebody who is 
trained in taking care of these things. And if you're going to have a, a neighbor do it, have it monitored. Just monitor every statement that comes into the house so that you know if there's any hanky-panky going on, you catch it at the very beginning. Mm. You mentioned something important about scams. You know, our elders have been scammed lots of dollars, and that's really um, it's important to find ways to control that. Well, what I do, because a lot of my, a lot of the elderly still have phones as opposed to all the mechanical um, computers and what have you. So next to each phone, I, I have printed out, do not give out personal information, no mm. social security, no names of grandchildren. No, 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 no. And so I have a, a printout <laughs> next to their phone <laughs> as a I reminder. Like uh, and I, there's a reminder on their, their entrance door. Uh, to their home or apartment. Mm. Uh, do not open the door unless you know this person. You know, it's all stranger danger as we teach our kids. Need to teach our, our elderly the same. But it's not always the stranger that no. is the problem. I it understood. is sometimes somebody close by, a neighbor, a relative, somebody you would not suspect would would do anything detrimental to your loved one. So warnings without being scary uh, are very important. Just reminders. Oh, in our hospice work, we get stories frequently of when we start discussing equipment and all that that comes with the hospice program. They always get a big sigh of relief. Oh, good. We don't have to pay for that. And like, well, is there an issue? And you will often hear the stories of a family member who come in and just wipe them clean. And it's a family member. It happens. It happens with more frequency than I care to discuss. Yeah. Mm. What do you suggest to people who are, and I'm sure they're not going to have, uh, we have many occasions, again, where we've run into situations where someone has no family. And all of a sudden they need a uh, uh a government, a government person to come and take care of all their their legal matters and all their their matters. How do you talk to someone who is going to possibly walk down that that road and uh, encourage them to get all this stuff put in order ahead of time? Yeah, the court system is very clear about when somebody is either incompetent or mm -hmm. somebody is at a point where they need somebody to take care of them. They may be competent, but they need a lot of assistance. Right. I get real lawyers involved, not somebody who says, well, you know, I went to law school, you know, 10 years ago, I can handle this. No, no. it has to be somebody who has a license because that makes them more, I would say reliable, but <laughs> I've met some lawyers that aren't reliable so uh you, you you want somebody who can who you know is absolutely what they say they are mm -hmm. they're in business they have they have a they have uh, an office they, they keep office hours uh they're not just some fly-by-night saying uh, well you know i had the same problem with one of my family members i'll take care of this no because when you give that responsibility to somebody else, you become responsible. So even if they do something that is immoral or illegal, because you gave them 
the ability to get into the house, get into their records, you become uh, rel- you become accountable. Mm. So this is something that should be talked about way ahead of time to have these all put in place so that when it comes to that time where there's uncertainty, there's something to look at and to know and to be, you know, while someone is competent, I guess is what you would say. And then, yes. okay, because I, you know, we've run again into situations where, you know, we have to go through the court system or something of that nature to get something so that we could even uh, have them in a hospice. People say, when should I get my legal papers in order? <laughs> my feeling is if you've got any assets whatsoever, or, you know, even if it's just a car or you've got a couple of bucks in the bank, have everything in order. Yeah. You just don't know when your time is up and somebody else is going to have to clean up after you. And then they wind up uh, not having the authority, not having uh, the, any idea of where papers are. Yeah. Everybody should have their their will, their health care proxy, a durable power of attorney. All of those pieces of paper should be in order, notarized or signed or whatever the particular document needs, and have them in one safe place, preferably in a, in a lockbox. Do not put these things in your safe deposit box at the bank, because when you die, the safe deposit, safe deposit box gets locked immediately as soon as the bank gets your social security number, which happens immediately upon your death, and that nobody can get into that safe deposit box, which might have all your papers. Exactly. So that is not the safest place to put it. No. Hmm. Man, as I'm listening to you, uh, you're giving a lot of knowledge that many people, for me, I'm just discovering now the need for this kind of education. So how is this knowledge being passed out? Are there lots of seminars about these topics you're addressing in your book? Running programs like you two are doing is a benefit, not just to your immediate audience, but to all of their family members who are going to be blessed because this information is going to go out exponentially. All of this information is going to go out. Yes. Wow, because I feel people really need to know this. Uh, sometimes people take things for granted until they need it, and then it's hard to find the right information. It, when you're on an emergency mode, then it becomes very difficult if all of this information is not already signed, sealed, and delivered and in uh-huh. one place. You should have a designated uh, somebody who is going to be your power of attorney, uh, both for your property and for the person, which are two separate items. Right. Mm. So you might have somebody who is going to take care of your finances and somebody else who's going to take care of you as a person. Uh-huh. Uh, and- I, I want you to know I have all my papers in order, but oh, I have okay. had all my papers in order for 100 years now. <laughs> well. Hey, Once I found out about this, I thought, <laughs> yeah. oh, my God, the, you're, you're leaving your loved ones in a terrible situation because you're leaving them not only with uh, the emotions that they are dealing be, dealing with because e- either you have 
been hit with a, a car and you know, are seriously uh, involved in an accident in, in the hospital, they're dealing with their emotions or you have just passed on and they're dealing with those emotions. So they've got the compound worry and concern, they're dealing with their own emotions and all the legal things that have to be dealt with. And if somebody dies, all of those pieces of paper, your your taxes all have to be done within a very specific time frame. That's you right. can't really dally with that stuff. No. Hmm. And you got to let your family know that you have it all together. And that, again, goes back to the communication issue. Yes. Uh, I... Uh, I used to run marathons, and I always told my kids, I said, I I have a DNR. If I were to just stop, my heart just stop when I'm running. And, you know, there's no way that I would want anybody to try and resuscitate me. And I got the, oh, dad. And I said, no, this is how it is. And they know how I feel. So, I mean, it it started early. And I think every everybody needs to start early on this and, and educating themselves on all of these steps as far as taking care, because we're all going to get, hopefully we're all going to get old. And, you know, if, we're all going to need help. We're all going to need assistance. And these are just wonderful ways for you to have shared all of this information with, with us and everybody else who's listening. But getting back, you, uh, how do you get mobility when you're disabled? The adapted equipment. If, if somebody... I had a, a let's start. I'm going to say this on a, on a personal level. I had my nephew, uh, 17 years old. He and his friends were a little high. They, they were, it was nighttime. They wanted to go swimming in somebody's pool. Oh, no. Uh, they went to the pool. He jumped in jumped off the diving board. There was no water in the pool. Oh no. So he wound up this beautiful, beautiful young man, 17 years old, you know, on all the sports field, and he was a quadriplegic. Hmm. Long, long time in 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 rehab. Hmm. We got him through all of that. I'm sorry, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. Take your him. time. That's Take tough. your time. We got every adapted equipment there was for him. We we got him a trained dog. He got we got him a trained monkey after a while because the dog could do certain things, but the monkey did other things. Hmm. He got uh, the best kind of uh, wheelchair for somebody. He was able to write. We got him a computer, and by putting a, a straw in his mouth, he was able to right at his computer, one word, one letter at a time, but he became a writer. He was able to, I'm I'm talking, this is now like three years after that whole thing. Uh, But he was brilliant and his mind kept functioning, but his body was was basically atrophied. Hmm. But he continued to, to live with exuberance. Gosh. He even had a couple of girlfriends. Good for him. Good <laughs> well, some parts of him were working. <laughs> <laughs> You're funny. <laughs> but adapted equipment, there is such a wealth. We are in, in an age of a wealth of information when it comes to adapted equipment. No matter what the problem is uh, with the right 
physical therapists, occupational therapists, and these people also know what kind of equipment you as an individual might need for your particular situation. The 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 wealth and, and breadth of equipment out there is is miraculous almost. Oh, I couldn't agree more because all I do is think about all the uh, people who are starting to, you know, use whatever the computer can do for them and help them walk, for instance. And it's incredible that they're talking about all these wonderful innovations. And there are all kinds of exercises that are um, on the computer yeah. So and for for virtually every level of exercise that's needed, but it's always good to get the guidance from somebody that mm-hmm. the medical profession that understands your particular needs, so that you don't overdo any part of your body, but you keep everything in balance. Life is a balance. And then that would that you know that unfortunate situation that happened with your nephew uh, leads you right into the topic of where is he going to live in the future. And what kind of a house and getting prepared for that and having, you know, homes are being built now for the elderly a lot more than they used to be. Well, and it's taking into account the needs of the elderly, not not the architect's needs, but the elderly. Uh-huh. Everything is uh-huh. so specific. Uh, and from from ramps to guardrails to to. The list is just goes on. Whatever the need is, there is a an adapted equipment out there that will fit the need. Mm. I live in a home in an over fifty five community, and I've got higher higher uh, counters. I've got walk in uh, shower. I'm all on one level, no stairs, uh, wider doorways, and. You know, when I bought that home 10 years ago, you know, I have no, you know, I still have no need for all of that, but I know that might happen in the future. Well, the whole, the whole economy is so that we can keep people independent as long as possible. Right. Most people would prefer to stay in their home, their own environment. Uh, they know the, the local neighbors so taking people out of their community is a disservice. If we can keep them at home as long as possible is always my drumbeat. Yeah. So how has elder care changed over the last 50 years or from when you started working in elder care? Oh, the, the changes have been, there's more education, there's more services available. There's more adapted equipment available. There's more knowledge available. There is so much research going on in all aspects of, of whatever the situation is. There is a research project going on right now. All of this information is available on your computer if you do a computer search to find out what is the cutting edge stuff that's going out right now. Mm. Conferences around the country and around the world are addressing whatever the major issues are. If somebody takes the time and energy, they are able to find answers to whatever their questions are, either for themselves or for their loved ones. First of all, to all our listeners, I would encourage you to get this book, Elder Care Made Easier. Really powerful wisdom there. Talk to us about the 10th step. 
learn to well, let go. Ten steps says learning to let go, but yes. it's really dying, death, and bereavement. But my <laughs> okay. publisher says nobody's going to read your last chapter, Dr. Barry. That's our zone right there. <laughs> <laughs> but death is a part of our life, and we need to embrace every moment that we have. But when you're dealing with death, take all the practical steps, deal with all the emotional issues, be as honest as you possibly can be to anybody who is going through the dying process, especially if they feel their time is short. There are so many things they want to say, they want to share, they have to share. And to have all of those thoughts and experiences die with them um, is depriving them of their, their true journey. And very often at the end of life, people want to say they're sorry. They, they want to make amends. They want to say, and sometimes they want to say something to somebody who has already passed on. And I will do exercises with them. And we, have, we conjure that person that they want to say something to, but that person has passed on. And we go through as though we were talking to that person. And they say all the things that they need to say, they have to say. And you could see the relief in their, in their body, in their soul, as they, as they let go of these emotions. Yes, of course, that person, the other person that they're talking to is not there, but the emotions are not ruminating in their head. The emotions are now out and the, the emotions are now free. And they are free of the burden, whatever the issue was, whether they did something that they shouldn't have done or it's something that they could have done and didn't do. It doesn't make any difference. It's their emotion and they are dealing with the process, but they are letting the process go. I have a very simple theory, very simple about dying death. You can't go through the pearly gates if you've got heavy suitcases with your anger at what you what could have been and wasn't done, the people who didn't do what they should have done, the, the things that you wish you had done but didn't do, the things that you didn't tell people who have since passed on. If you're going through the dying process, and I, I my, my story is you're going through the pearly gates, you can't take those big suitcases with no. you. Mm -hmm. It makes the transition that much more difficult. Yes. But my experience has been that when somebody is now free of all their emotional baggage, all of it, they make the transition from what we now experience as life to whatever it is that comes next. And they make that transition relatively smoothly. And it's very beautiful to watch especially when I've been with people who I've known how much they, they, they needed to get rid of before they made the transition. And when they make the transition to what we call death, it's beautiful. In your view of end of life and you're walking through this journey with folks, uh, it sounds very hospice-oriented. Do you consider that you are a strong advocate for hospice? Oh, I have I have loved hospice from the first time I understood its concept. Okay. Uh, your, your volunteers are wonderful. They're well trained. They're sensitive. It's been a beautiful experience to interact with the hospice program in general, general, and the hospice people specifically. They have all been, without exception, caring, loving, 
uh, involved uh, and 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 compassionate to a very beautiful level, and uh, not necessarily because they were trained. These are people that have been chosen to be in hospice because they are compassionate and they have a high level of understanding. And be, and before we end this program, I would like to just go to the very last page of my book. Mm. It's Elder Care A through Z. And I don't know if you've gotten that far back. Because my experience is the caregiver very often statistically not my opinion. Statistically, 17% of the caregivers die before the person that they're caring for, because we're not always caring for an elderly person. It could be a sister, a sibling, a spouse, a disabled child. So the caregiver is giving, they already have a plate before they have this, a plate full of activities. They have a job, they have a whole life, and all of a sudden they have this other responsibility to take care of this other person. And they keep giving, 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 and they stop going to their book club and and exercising and all the things that help generate them and help them to stay healthy. And they just keep giving and then they expire. And I want the caregivers to take care of themselves, that to me is just as important as the person that you're caring for. Because if you are not there to take care of them, who will? Absolutely So can right. you read the A through Z for the caregivers? Is that okay with yes. you? Okay. Yes, it's it's A through Z. Hmm. Uh, I'll just say with them, A, A is address the issues at hand, and Z is zone out and reward yourself for a job well done. <laughs> I like I, I like how quick you went through those. You cut corners there, don't you? <laughs> I took some poetic liberties in writing this. There you go. I Excess see. exhaustion may set in so finally to relieve stress. But, it, <laughs> but that's I had fun with that. But what I do is when I working with caregivers, I print this out for them so that they have it near their computer or on their 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 bathroom window or bathroom mirror. A lot of them put them on the bathroom mirror as a constant reminder i can get through this i can get through this and, yes. and people giggle at this but i spent a lot of time thinking about when i wrote this book mm. i have to take care of the caregivers as well yes because they are the backbone of this country they are underpaid underappreciated and hardly acknowledged by their family sometimes and very mm. often the the responsibility of the caregiving falls on one person within the family. And I want more fairness and people to understand that caregiving is a joy. Mm. And but you have to take care of yourself. Exactly. Dr. Marion, you are a true champion of elder care. How can our <laughs> listeners get a hold of you? They can go to my website, drmarion.com. Very cool. Yeah. And and the book, uh, Elder Care Made Easier, is at uh, Barnes & Noble. Very good. Thank you very much for talking to us. That was Dr. Marion Somers, the author of Elder Care Made Easier. The second edition is out. Please go and get it. Uh, thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. <laughs>